Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, Revoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Yes, hello, Internet. Welcome to Chapter 15 of the Dubious Book of Famous Deeds, the history podcast that looks at the world through the eyes of the Victorians as told by a book from 1889 that I found in an alleyway, the pictorial treasury of famous men and famous deeds. The men are obscure, the deeds are questionable, and sometimes they're all about lighthouses which is the case today. I'm your host, Paul Bates, not a scholar, not a historian, but I promise I have done my best to fact-check and explain this ludicrous book. Today, we're reading about John Smeaton, grandfather of civil engineering and builder of the Eddystone Lighthouse. But more importantly, we're going to learn about lighthouse tragedies. And let me tell you, these lighthouses fail spectacularly. Joining me for this one is a great friend and even better comedian. He let me read to him in Chapter 3 about the world's longest tunnel, and incredibly, he is back for more. Please welcome Alistair Forbes. Alistair, thank you for joining. Oh, I'm so excited. I could sleep last night because all night I was just thinking about tunnels. Uh, which, of course, we really dove into uh, last time and how tunnels back in the day were really misogynistic. Uh. Oh, yeah. <laughs> the, the patriarchal construct that built tunnels. Um. <laughs> so obviously, I can, I'm so excited to see what famous deed we're going to be reading about today. Well, yeah, I wanted to bring you back because I kind of recognize it wasn't the most famous deed, the building of a tunnel. Wow! Excuse me. I've heard your other episodes, and I'm pretty sure that misogynistic tunnel was the absolute... Like, you go back in history and look at, you know, like, you know, the Empire of Rome, you know, mm-hmm. Genghis Khan and that kind of thing. The the long men-only tunnel is up there, you know? Can you remember the name of the tunnel? Absolutely not. No, okay. <laughs> <laughs> I, see, uh, I see what happened there. You called me out pretty quick on that, yeah. The, uh, the St. Gotard's Tunnel, I believe it was called, connecting, I can't remember, somewhere in, in Switzerland to somewhere in Italy. It went under the Alps. Wait, does Switzerland connect to Italy? I think so, doesn't it? I like how I came out real strong on saying how important this was historically, and then you just, in like, I don't know, two minutes, really exposed my geographical ignorance. Fair. <laughs> Well, this is not about tunnels. This chapter is about the opposite of tunnels, Alistair. Yes! Yes, we're going in a completely different direction, and I think your mind is going to be blown. Are you ready? (laughs) The opposite of tunnels. I'm so excited. Okay. Here we go. This is chapter 15, The Builder of the Eddystone Lighthouse. (laughs) Oh, man. Again, you mentioned Rome, you mentioned Genghis Khan. You can't mention those two without mentioning the Eddystone Lighthouse. Blammo! 
John Smeaton was born, according to most authorities, on the 28th of May, 1724, at Austhorpe, near Leeds, in a house built by his grandfather and long afterwards inhabited by his family. And famously, we don't know when his birthday is. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> most historians agree it's this date. <laughs> In fact, most historians agree that his actual birthday was June the 8th. Yeah. So this, yeah. Uh, but here's why. I looked this up. The discrepancy lies in the fact, this is why people are like, well, we think he was born on this day. It's because around this time, England switched from the Julian calendar to the Gregorian calendar in 1752. And the date jumped from September 2nd to September the 14th they retroactively changed people's birth dates. What? Based on the, the new Gregorian calendar. Hold on a second. Like, okay, so my birthday is July 25th. You're telling me at some point the government was just like, hey, everybody, uh, Alistair, your birthday is now July 8th. <laughs> yes, yes. If it was done today, you would have gotten an email. You would have gotten some sort of uh, letter in the mail. Uh, stating, okay, attention, your birthday is now this day because we have updated our calendar uh, to account for uh, the solar year not being an exact number of days. How many parents do you think took advantage of that? You know, like, you know, people were not the richest back then anyway, like probably really struggling to afford birthday presents for their kids. So it's July 14th, their birthday's coming up in nine days. They get they get this letter saying <laughs> their birthdays would move back to July 8th. Are they like, oh, sorry, sorry, little Timmy. Uh, <laughs> turns out you're, because of the new calendar, your birthday's already passed. We'll have to wait till next year. <laughs> uh, it's not our fault. It's the government. Yeah. It's the yeah. king. Oh, man, so sorry. I just think, all I could think about was, you know, you get thrown off by daylight savings sometimes you're like oh oh I, I forgot to change the clocks i'm an hour late for work it's just like yeah. you show up for work back then they're like you got you got fired two weeks ago <laughs> why it's it's september the 14th what <laughs> what yeah all the all the harvests and stuff like that people would be very late or early on the harvests i would imagine you know I, it must have been pure chaos when they made that yeah <laughs> i believe so yeah the julian and gregorian calendars the difference it seems almost negligible both have leap days every four years but in the gregorian every 100 years we skip the leap year unless the year is divisible by 400. That was the rule they made that retroactively added 14 days to the calendar. Because somebody, I was blows my mind, really, especially in 1752, they figured this out. Somebody realized that the seasons were getting fucked up. Really? Yeah. Like, so September 14th uh, back then was turning into our November 2nd. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> They're like, something's wrong. Is it? Is it God? Is he doing this to us? Or have we been counting the days wrong? Do you think they burned that person as a witch when he first suggested it? Yeah, 100%. And then afterwards, as they're sweeping up his ashes, they're like, wait a second. Wait a minute. Divisible? Yeah. Oh. Yeah, divisible oh. by 400. Okay. Oh, okay. I, I can get it. I yeah. see. Yeah. 
<laughs> okay. All right. We're one sentence in. All right. So we're talking about we're talking about John Smeaton. All right. Born in Leeds on either May the twenty eighth or June the eighth. Okay. His father was an attorney and brought him up with a view to the legal profession. One of his biographers states that his toys were the tools of men, and that while yet little more than an infant, he was discovered one day on the top of his father's barn fixing something like a windmill. A baby on top of a barn. This is a terrible father. Yes, 100% a horrible father. And they say it as though it's a good thing, like, his baby toys were the toys of men. <laughs> and if it's like sharp tools and stuff... <laughs> Yeah. I like for sure John's parents were the parents who were like, sorry, we got the letter. Your birthday happened a couple weeks ago. We're gonna have to skip it this year. <laughs> but you know what? Here's a circular saw though. Yeah. Here's a circular saw that I'm not using. Yeah, 100 <laughs> percent Wait, what was it? What did they say? He was on top of the barn fixing what? Uh fixing something like a windmill. I don't know why they wrote it like that. It was a windmill. He was building a windmill. A boy genius on top of a barn, yeah. Yeah, baby building a windmill, no doubt. <laughs> it, listen, if that happened, that would be a stamp in England. Yeah. That would be like, yeah, they would be like, hey, here's a commemorative stamp of the baby that built a windmill. I would love to see that stamp, just a little baby <laughs> holding a hammer with a really dumb baby look on it, sitting next to a windmill. <laughs> Okay, but I think the gist is John Smeaton is born with an inclination towards building things. At the age of 14 or 15, we find him constructing a machine for rose engine turning. You know what that is? Rose engine turning? Absolutely yeah. not. Wait, is this I, like harvesting roses? That's what I thought, but it is a geometric lathe used for creating detailed and intricate patterns on metal. So uh, it's a little ornamental metal device. So that's pretty cool. Yeah, that is pretty cool. Would have been cooler if he also built it when he was a baby, though. Yeah. You know, like, yeah. but if he built a windmill when he was a fucking baby and then <laughs> when he's 15, he builds that, his parents are probably like, I don't know, man. No. <laughs> it feels like it's been downhill since the windmill. <laughs> About this time in the year 1742, in pursuance of his father's design, young Smeaton came to London and attended the courts of law at Westminster Hall. Westminster Hall, uh, also the seat of the House of Commons in London, that cool building. Oh, wait, and yeah. then is Westminster Abbey all like, is it just a campus of famous buildings? I, I, I think so, yeah. Westminster is all around there, yeah. But finding the bent of his mind adverse to the law, his father yielded to his wishes and allowed him to devote his energies to more congenial matters. The next event... <laughs> the next event related is his taking up the business of a mathematical instrument maker. About the year 1750, when he was residing in lodgings in great turnstile. Wait, okay, hold on. I feel like there's a lot to unpack here. Wait, so... He became a lawyer, and then and then he said to his dad, "Hey, dad, look, I love I love what you did, but I want to do something more congenial." Yes, love that word. Yeah, and then they're about to relate the story of him taking over a mathematical instrument business. Uh, yes, or at least taking a job there. Um, so he's like, "Dad, I don't want to be a lawyer. My heart is with the production of mathematical instruments, like Texas Instrument Calculators type thing." Exactly, but the 1700s version of that, which I guess would be a protractor. 
Or like a really fancy abacus? <laughs> yeah, that's yeah. A solar powered abacus? <laughs> I would love to see a solar powered abacus. <laughs> right. Great Turnstile is where he lived. And I love this name. Great Turnstile still exists. It's an alley in central London, and it is so called because in Tudor times, it originally had turnstiles to prevent cattle from straying. What? Yeah. Its neighbors are the alleyways Little Turnstile and New Turnstile. <laughs> Can you imagine the committee back then just being like, okay, well, we built a new alley. What are we going to call this one? Got... How big is the turnstile? <laughs> yeah. Smaller or bigger than Great Turnstile? <laughs> okay, well, Little Turnstile it is. <laughs> In 1751, he tried experiments with a machine that he had invented for measuring a ship's way at sea. I think he means a compass, but I don't know. And in 1752 and 1753 was engaged in a course of experiments, quote, concerning the natural powers of water and wind to turn mills and other machines depending on circular motion. Uh, these experiments he laid out in a paper called An Experimental Inquiry Concerning the Natural Powers of Water and Wind to Turn Mills and Other Machines Depending on Circular Motion. Okay. This is significant because in it, he developed the concepts and data which became the basis for the Smeaton coefficient, the lift equation used by the Wright brothers. What? Okay, that's okay. Couple things. First, it's great to see that, you know, later in life, after getting this mathematic job, he went back to his roots as a baby and built, <laughs> you know, more windmill things or circular machine type yeah, yeah, windmill right. things. Yeah. <laughs> Goes back to his roots as a baby. Uh, second, I am so glad you got me on for this chapter because it's it is scintillating. <laughs> <laughs> The the essay on circular powered machinery is <laughs> I can see why you brought me in. It, uh -huh. <laughs> totally. Yeah. Yeah. Like this is the exciting chapter. Let's get it. This guy. <laughs> but if he created an equation that the Wright brothers used, that's a nice little footnote in history. Uh, that is, yeah. Yeah. The Wright brothers had to correct it, but still they yeah. say he laid the basis <laughs> for it. Oh, oh, so it was wrong. <laughs> the equation was right. But one point of data that he entered, they were like, no, it needs to be this. And then they were like, okay, that's our lift equation for flying. That's honestly, it's, I mean, it's certainly more than I've done. So I can't, right. you know, yeah. I want to make fun of them. I got to say, so far, I mean, despite the uh, lack of any women so far, um, mm -hmm. his life story is less misogynistic than the building of the tunnel so far, though. Yeah, true. Uh, um, I don't know if we're going to hear about any women in this uh <laughs> Well, given the history of this book, I'm going to guess a uh, hard no. <laughs> okay, now we're getting to the very exciting stuff now, all right? This has been so far a roller coaster ride, but now we're going to get to <laughs> wow, yeah. the real meat. In 1766, Smeaton commenced the great work which, more than any other, may be looked upon as a lasting monument of his skill— the Eddystone Lighthouse. It was the third lighthouse built on the perilous rock from which it derives its name, and in order to understand the real merit of the enterprise, 
it will be desirable to show what was the nature of the two previous attempts to form a lighthouse at this spot. <laughs> We're not going to hear about one lighthouse. We're going to hear about three lighthouses. <laughs> so, uh, okay, wow. I mean, so it's not like he invented the lighthouse, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> No, no, no. Because it, and, and not even close, because it's not like like he was close to the first lighthouse. Like he wasn't even close to the first lighthouse on this spot, <laughs> on that very rock. <laughs> I mean, I guess in order to truly understand his endeavor, I will have to know how the first one failed. <laughs> yeah, that's true. But you know what? This is my favorite part about this particular chapter is we're going to hear about a lot of failure now, and I love it. Okay, great. Remember when he was a baby and he built a windmill? He probably doesn't remember it. That's the problem. He probably can't remember. This is the tragedy of John Smeaton's life, that he was like, hey, you know you built a windmill on top of a barn when you were a baby. I have no memory of that. I, I wish I could yeah. remember. But when you were a baby, you kept telling us this this equation that would help a lift and stuff like that, and it was perfect then. Oh, I can't remember. I can't recreate it. And then the Wright brothers like wrote in their journal, like, if only John Smeaton had still been a baby, this would have been correct. Uh, it's hard to peak when you're a baby. <laughs> oh, man. that's great. All right, let's hear about the Eddystone Rocks. As the Eddystone Rocks lie nearly in the direction of vessels coasting up and down the channel, they were unavoidably before the establishment of a lighthouse there, very dangerous and often fatal. Many a gallant ship, which had voyaged in safety across the whole breadth of the Atlantic, was shattered to pieces on this hidden source of destruction as it was nearing port and went down with its crew in sight of their native shores. Tragic. It was therefore very desirable that the spot should, if possible, be pointed out by a warning light. The Eddystone Rocks, a hazardous series of rocks near Plymouth, in the south of England, oh. uh, and right at the entrance of the English Channel. So they're not kidding. The ships would be heading in to the channel, so close to home, and these things were often submerged in high tide. Ships would often either wreck on these rocks or wreck on the coast of France trying to avoid these rocks. Oh, wow. So if I'm understanding correctly, they're they're painting a picture that they really needed to build this lighthouse where they needed a lighthouse. <laughs> yeah, that's I think that's the central like if you're coming into the story, I think that's the backstory that you need. That's the, ex that's the exposition that's necessary for I'm, the real understanding. I'm glad because I for a while was like, okay, he built this lighthouse. It was the third one on the spot. But did they really need a lighthouse there? <laughs> Turns out, yes. Turns out they did. <laughs> I honestly, when you first read it, I thought the lighthouse was like four or five kilometers inland. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, okay. But the same circumstances which made the Eddystone Rocks so formidable to the mariner rendered the attempt to erect a lighthouse upon them a peculiarly difficult enterprise. So for years they believed that they could never build a lighthouse on the Eddystone Rocks because nobody could reach the rocks. You couldn't land there. I'm pretty sure, by the way, that the Eddystone Lighthouse is the first open ocean lighthouse. Okay. That, you know what? John Smeaton, forget everything I said. That's pretty cool. 
Like, as you're saying it now, I'm like, I don't know how I'd build an open ocean lighthouse. You know what I mean? Right, yeah. And that's with modern equipment. You that's know? true. Yeah, we'll use lower one with a helicopter. <laughs> <laughs> I'm pretty sure that's how, yeah, that would work, yeah. Just lower it. Like, like the helicopter would be pretty good, like, because you just got to, like, when it lands, like, see the balance and, like, oh, move it over a bit, a bit. Yeah, okay, it's standing. Leave it. Okay, great. <laughs> All right, so. The task, however, was at last undertaken by a Mr. Henry Winstanley of Littlebury in Essex, a gentleman of some property, and not a regularly bred engineer or architect, but only a person with a natural turn for mechanical invention and fond of amusing himself with ingenious experiments. (laughs) (laughs) What a sentence. (laughs) Not regularly bred? engineer is that what it said like back then you didn't study to become an engineer you like two engineers had sex and then you were born an engineer (laughs) that was yeah you you had to have engineer blood this is their way of saying he was neither an architect or an engineer and yet built a lighthouse he was an english artist and merchant like you ever walk around like in a neighborhood and walk by that one house with like 150 gnomes in front and like Mm -hmm. you know there's like (laughs) mosaic glass mosaics all over the the front the facade of the house and everything and like Mm. some weird contraption they've built like the eccentric neighbor a hundred percent i know exactly the house you're talking about north on clinton street in toronto ontario that is absolutely right yes (laughs) yeah (laughs) this is that guy His house at Littlebury was fitted up with a multitude of strange contrivances with which he surprised and amused his guests. (laughs) He sounds like a horrible person. And he he also had... And he also had an exhibition of waterworks at Hyde Park Corner. Okay, so... Henry Winstanley, born 1644, eccentric as hell... I would hate to visit this guy's place. He rigged practical jokes in his house. Like like you sit down in a chair and just like mechanical arms come out and slap your titties or something. And you're just like, oh, great. Here we go again. <laughs> Alistair, you're joking. But that is exactly what he did. He literally did that. What? It's, it's documented, yeah, that he built a chair where if you sat in it, arms would would come up, pop up, and clasp around you, and you would be trapped in the chair. That was his. That I was w- his practical joke. <laughs> I was a hundred percent joking. I was trying to give, like, off the top of my head, an example of what a shitty friend would do, like that's every him. time you went to their house, and that's him. <laughs> oh, thanks for visiting. Have a seat. <laughs> oh, okay, good. Great. <laughs> uh, also, the other things in his house, if, uh, if you walked into his foyer or his, his front living room or whatever, and you, you, you stepped on a particular tile or tripped a wire, uh, a ghost would, uh, would rise up uh, in front of you. Oh, my God. Here's my favorite one. He had a summer house in his garden that backed onto a canal. Okay. If you entered it... That house would leave its moorings and drift away. <laughs> oh, man. I got, the other one's maybe done, but I got to be honest, that's pretty good. 
Like, can you imagine inviting somebody over and being like, oh, you want a coffee? You sit there for 15 minutes, and then the person's like, anyway, I can't say I got to go. And you're like, no problem. And then they like open the front door, and there's like a half kilometer of ocean. Or like, have fun leaving quickly. Here's how he made his money. He made a lot of money doing this. He created the Winstanley Waterworks. It was an elaborate fountain and firework display that drew crowds for at least a decade. So he was like an entrepreneur who built a public attraction called the Waterworks. And it was like, you know, pressurized fountains to amuse and delight the spectators, along yeah. with some pyrotechnic feats. And this made him, uh, I guess, a small fortune, uh, like as an entertainment. People kept coming and coming and coming. That's pretty great. Yeah. So he invested the profit of some of that uh, into five ships to become a merchant, you know, in importing, exporting. And he lost two of his ships on the Eddystone Rocks. And one day <laughs> was like, God, someone's going to have to do something about this. You know what? I've built uh, I've built a chair whose arms can uh, can clasp people, <laughs> uh, trap people in them if they sit down. I've built a ghost on, with a series of pulleys and levers. I'm gonna build a lighthouse. <laughs> but it's a trick lighthouse. <laughs> like 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 the light only goes on after you crash into the rock. <laughs> And the horn goes, wah, wah. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> oh, this is amazing. Uh, I can't believe this guy. I, I can't believe you're about to tell me he failed at building this lighthouse. <laughs> <laughs> Here we go. Win Stanley uh, began to erect his lighthouse on the Eddystone Rocks in 1696. And it was finished about four years later. From the best information which can now be obtained, it appears to have been a polygonal, or many-cornered, thanks for explaining that, uh, building mm -hmm. of stone. And when it had received its last additions of about 100 feet in height. Originally, the Winstanley Lighthouse was completely wooden. It was ornately designed and very colorful. I'm going to show you a drawing of it here. Wow. It looks like a Salvador Dali painting. Yeah. Oh my gosh, it's ludicrous. It is ludicrous. It's got weird pulleys uh, and cables hanging off of it. It's got what looks like ornate designs on each side. Open walls and then some like windows that come out and stuff. Hey man, like just, just build a functional lighthouse. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I'm looking at this closely now. It's got one beam with a barrel hanging off, one beam with a big hook. It's got a, an ornate weather vane on top. It's got writing in Latin on the side. Yeah, it's got weird um, windows with awnings. It just looks like something out of a bad fantasy novel. You know what I mean? Yeah, like... for sure. Like if Saruman was whimsical, that's what his tower would look like. <laughs> yeah, totally. Yeah. Like if Tolkien was like, I also like steampunk a little bit. Let me throw a bit of that in here. <laughs> Can you imagine, like, telling the, the, the mayor, you know, and the heads of, of council, like, great news, I've finished the lighthouse. God, we can't wait to see it. Everybody in the boat, I'm going to bring you over to the lighthouse. And they get the clothes, and everyone's like, what the fuck is this? <laughs> you totally. You better be like, we'll go see it at night. That's what it's built for. And <laughs> you just can't see it at all. There's just like, 
like one or two small candles artistically around the outside. Shadow puppeteers doing puppet work. Yeah. Yeah. They'll be like, the ships can't see this. They're like, no, no, of course they can't see it. They're going to crash still. But when they do, my God, will they appreciate the art. So this was octagonal, colorful, wooden at first. Eventually, they realized, wait, this needs to be made of stone. And so they put a series of stone uh, uh, reinforcements on it and made it 12-sided instead of 8-sided. I'm not sure why. Of course, right? Still, the sea in stormy weather ascended far above this elevation. It was 100 feet tall. So much so that persons acquainted with the place used to remark after the erection of Winstanley's building that it was possible for a six-oared boat to be lifted up upon a wave and to be carried through the open gallery by which it was surmounted. Now that's a functional lighthouse. It's not so much warning ships away, it's more like guiding ships through the horrible yeah, rocks. That's right. You just as long as you like time it right on the wave, you're going to zip on through and you're going to get this little like carnival fun ride like i bet you when the ship goes through there's a tripwire and a ghost comes out you know definitely like. absolutely the architect himself it is said felt so confident in the strength of the structure that he frequently declared his only wish was to be in it during the greatest storm that ever blew under the face of the heavens that he might see what would be the effect I will give you one guess as to what happens next. (laughs) That's right. We've heard enough of the building of lighthouses. Now we're going to hear about their destruction. When we come back, we'll learn Henry Winstanley's fate. And after that, the craziest lighthouse story you've ever heard. That is a promise. All that and more after this brief but necessary break. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. We're back. When we left off, hobbyist inventor Henry Wynne Stanley had declared that he wished he could be in his lighthouse on the day of the worst storm in English history. Well, he is about to get hit by a massive bolt of irony. Let's return to Chapter 15 with Alastair Forbes. On the 26th of November, 1703, Wynne Stanley was in the lighthouse superintending some repairs when there came on the most terrible tempest which was ever known in England. Next morning, not a vestige of the building was to be seen. It had been swept into the deep, as was afterwards found from the foundation not a stone or beam or iron bar remaining on the rock. The single thing left was a piece of iron chain which had got so wedged into a deep cleft that it stuck there till it was cut out more than 50 years afterwards. Wow. I mean, it's tough to believe this book being accurate by any stretch of the imagination. Right. But, wow, that that lighthouse is is poorly built if 
<laughs> not even a stone from the foundation is left. Like, again, if like the top half gets swept away or something, but like... Well, we are actually talking about the Great Storm of 1703. This is what analysts say could have been classified as a Category 2 hurricane in England. Oh, wow. Yeah, so they're not just being hyperbolic here. Uh, this storm destroyed 4,000 oak trees. It collapsed 2,000 chimneys. It destroyed 400 windmills. Baby John Smeaton would have been like, no! <laughs> yeah. <laughs> With the wind turning the gears of these windmills so fast that some burst into flame, um, <gasps> hundreds of people and thousands of sheep drowned in the wetlands of Somerset. Dozens of ships were wrecked, killing at least 1,500 seamen. It killed between 8,000 and 15,000 people in total. This storm was one of the worst storms, if not the worst storm, to ever hit England and happened the same year that uh, Win Stanley was like, I would love to be inside my lighthouse <laughs> when, when the worst storm in history hits. I got to be honest, I really felt like you buried the lead on what happened in that storm because you said eight to 15,000 people died, which mm -hmm. is incredible and yeah. sad, yeah. but you led with it destroyed 400 oak trees. <laughs> Yeah, I don't know why I ordered it that way. <laughs> it's pretty great. It's pretty great. Well, at least you got to see what he wanted, you know? Yeah, that's it. I'll bet he went out happy. I'll bet he didn't even yeah. try to escape. <laughs> he was like Tim Robbins when he gets out of the prison in, in Shawshank, just standing there with his arms out, covered in rain. Yeah. Just going, ah! <laughs> Such was the end of the first Eddystone Lighthouse. Soon after, an act of Parliament was then passed for the building of a new lighthouse on a lease granted to a Captain Lovett for 99 years. Good lease to land. Classic. 99-year yeah. lease. Mm -hmm. The individual whom Lovett made choice of was a Mr. John Rudyard, a silk mercer on Ludgate Hill, who began the building of his lighthouse in July 1706, and in 1709, it was completed in all its parts. Okay, John Rudyard, a silk mercer, is a dealer in fine textiles like silk and velvet, so also not an architect, not an engineer. <laughs> we need somebody to build a lighthouse. I'll do it. What are, uh, what are your qualifications? I, uh, I deal in soft materials. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Do you, do you have any experience uh, with architecture? I fasten the soft materials together sometimes. <laughs> I got to be honest. I mean, I feel like I know where this is going, but I, already I am shocked that this second lighthouse is going to fail. <laughs> <laughs> This is a good gig for John Rudyard. He, his agreement stated that he'd receive 250 pounds per year from the dues collected of the lighthouse. Ships had to pay a penny uh, each when passing to help pay for the lighthouse. Those dues today would equal 62,000 pounds a year. That's not bad. Yeah. Build a lighthouse, you know. Yeah. Just live off the royalties. God, got into the wrong business. Okay, so this is a great story. You're going to love this story. It's honestly, it's a fantastic <laughs> story. I can't, well, I can't build this up enough. <clears throat> um, <laughs> It differed from its predecessor in two important respects, being not of stone, but of wood. Okay, so they went back to wood for this one. They made it with wood. <laughs> oh, good. Yeah. yeah. Uh -huh. And not angular, but perfectly round. 
I guess that would help with the wind blowing on a lighthouse. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and the waves too. If it, oh, true. You know, yeah, came to it. Its entire height was ninety-two feet. This building, notwithstanding some severe storms which it encountered, stood until the second of December, seventeen fifty-five. So it stood for forty-six years. Okay, I know this is about Smeaton building his successful lighthouse, but and the other two ones failed before it. But you got to think if you build a lighthouse that lasts forty years in the seventeen hundreds, you it is a success. Uh, yeah, that's it, right. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, like after 40 years, your wooden lighthouse, like, collapses or fails. Like, no one's going to go, like, see? <laughs> like, I'm amazed it, that a wooden lighthouse wouldn't rot in water like that. But how many oak trees died in the oh, storm? 4,000. So they had a lot of leftover woods. Yeah. We have a surplus of wood. I would love to have some stone for this lighthouse. No, you're using <laughs> <No>. woods. <laughs> You, you're going to use this oak because 8,000 people died for it. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Now we're going to hear about the day that it failed. The 2nd of December, 1755. A day of infamy. Yeah. Because correct me if I'm wrong. December 6th is the current day that lives in infamy, right? The That's Pearl right. Harbor. The Pearl Harbor. Yeah. Yeah. But before that, like I think in 1940 and before, mm-hmm. it was December 2nd. Everyone knew. <laughs> <laughs> the day of infamy was December 2nd, the day the second Eddie Lighthouse yep. failed after 40 years. Yep, definitely, yeah. And then, like, after Pearl Harbor, they're like, well, we better change it. Also, because of the Gregorian calendar, we should probably change it. <laughs> so, to them, it's actually the same day to most people, <laughs> if you follow the Gregorian and Julian calendar. December should just be infamy month. <laughs> There's so many days that live in infamy. About 2 o'clock that morning... One of the three men who had the charge of it, having gone up to snuff the candles in the lantern. See, there's first first mistake right there is why do you snuff out the candles in a lantern of a lighthouse, especially in the middle of the night? Why would you do that? Yeah, why would you do Yeah, that yeah. makes no sense. <laughs> but going up to snuff the candles in the lantern found the place full of smoke from the midst of which a flame burst forth. A spark from some of the 24 candles which were kept constantly burning, contradicting the very previous sentence, had probably ignited the woodwork. There's a structural flaw right there. (laughs) I I can't believe we didn't comment on this earlier. The wooden lighthouse with a bunch of fire. (laughs) (laughs) Who could have foreseen this coming? (laughs) No one. No one. Our best men were on it. The man did his utmost to effect the extinction of the fire by throwing water upon it from a tub. Incidentally, (laughs) the fire was above him, and so he was throwing water up at the fire, which is not going to work. It's not going to (laughs) work. But I believe that was the most effective firefighting tool back in the day, just taking a tub and hucking it above you. (laughs) (laughs) The other two brought up more water from below but as they had to go down and return a flight of 70 feet for this purpose their endeavors were of little avail at last Mm -hmm. a quantity of the lead on the roof having melted came down in a torrent upon the head and shoulders of the man who remained above (gasps) he was an old man of 94 of the name of Henry Hall well that's fine then yeah that's fine (laughs) But still, full of strength and activity. Henry Hall 
the oldest of a long line of Hall family lighthouse keepers who kept light along the coasts of England and Wales for over 200 years. The Halls intermarried with two other lighthouse keeping families, the Darlings and the Knots, (laughs) forming a real lighthouse keeping dynasty. Is that actually what's written in the book? No, those are my notes. <laughs> yeah, okay, yeah, yeah, I respect it. Yeah. Lighthouse Keeping Dynasty is yeah. incredible. I gotta be honest, like, shout out to Mr. Hall here, 94, going up 70 feet of stairs yeah. to snuff candles out. Good like, Lord. What a way to go. What Hot a way lead to go. falling on you. But that's not the end of his story. What? No. This accident extinguished their last hopes, and they then sought refuge in a hole or cave on the eastern side of the rock, it being fortunately by this time low water. Boats, of course, were at once sent out. They arrived at the lighthouse about 10 o'clock, so that's eight hours they've been stuck outside a burning lighthouse, and the three men were dragged into one of the boats. One of them, as soon as he was brought on shore, as if struck with some panic, took flight and was never more heard of. <laughs> but why? <laughs> he gets out, he goes, this, this place is crazy! And just runs. <laughs> because the wooden lighthouse burnt down. Like, I mean, no doubt that's a harrowing experience. Mm-hmm. Like... Maybe he was just freaked out that the 94-year-old was still alive, even though lead had, hot lead had been poured on him. Yeah. So he was case. like, this is this is the zombie attack we've all been waiting for. <laughs> As for old Hall, he always persisted in saying that the doctors would never bring him around. Nobody could believe that this was anything more than an imagination of the old man. But on the 12th day after the fire... Having been suddenly seized with cold sweats and spasms, he expired, and a flat, oval piece of lead of the weight of seven ounces and five drams was found in his stomach. (laughs) In his stomach? Yes. What? Yes. Hall is up there, 94-year-old Hall, is up there throwing a tub of water up, directly up above him, trying to put a fire out looking up to check his progress just as molten lead is pouring down, landing on his face and his shoulders and pouring down his throat. So he's drinking molten lead. A 94-year-old Doesn't man die. Doesn't die. <laughs> gets back to land. All right. They're taken to a Dr. Henry Spry, a surgeon in Plymouth. And in case you're wondering if the bedside manner of surgeons or doctors has changed in the last 250 years. I am. Spry dismisses Hall's claims that he had swallowed molten lead and sends him home. You're fine. You're fine. Because the doctor believed that no one could have survived such an injury, which I guess is fair because it's hard to believe that that could happen, right? I was about to make fun of the doctor for sending him home, but to be honest, I probably would have sent him home too. You're 94. You didn't swallow molten lead. There's no way you'd be sitting here talking to me. It doesn't make any sense. The upper half of your body is horribly burned, but you're fine. (laughs) Go home. Sleep it off. So he didn't die from the injuries. He basically died from lead poisoning. Yeah. Having eaten lead. Yeah. For the next 12 days, 94-year-old Henry Hall keeps coming around the doctor saying, listen, you've got to see me. I swallowed hot lead. (laughs) 
You have to see me. And the doctor keeps saying, no, if anything, you're getting better. You look great. (laughs) (laughs) And sure enough, he dies 12 days later. And Spry performs an autopsy and removed from his stomach, oval-shaped slab, convex on one side, so sitting at the bottom of his stomach, weighing seven ounces, five drams, and 18 grains, about the weight of a softball. Incidentally, that piece of lead now sits in the National Museum of Scotland. You can go and see it. Whoa! <laughs> yeah. How is this chapter of Famous Deeds not about Henry Hall? <laughs> uh, yeah, why is it not about the guy who survived drinking molten lead? When he was 94, mm-hmm. that's unbelievable. What a constitution. What was he eating previous? Like that's gotta be, that's gotta <laughs> say something about the English or Scottish diet. This guy literally had a lead-lined stomach for two weeks <laughs> at 94 and survived. Also, when the doctor pulled out the giant piece of lead, is it like a big like, okay, well, that's my bad. That's <laughs> this, <laughs> this is on me. Yeah, yeah, I I see the mistake I made. I, I should have believed the man who was covered in molten lead had maybe swallowed some molten lead. <laughs> There's an epilogue to the story, uh, and that's that Dr. Spry passed on the account of the incident to the Royal Society of Sciences, the UK's National Society of Sciences. And he was met with such skepticism by them for the same reason. They're like, impossible, wouldn't happen. That he set Uh out to prove that someone could survive for a short time after ingesting molten lead. And he did so by pouring molten lead down the throats of numerous dogs and chickens. (laughs) As soon as he said... He set out to prove, I was like, this can't be going anywhere good. And I was right. That's that's horrible. Didn't, and it just wasn't one dog and one chicken. He was like, okay, uh, this dog I fed lead after feeding him a generous amount of milk. Uh, this dog I fed lead after feeding him no milk at all. This chicken I fed just a spoonful of lead. Like, he employed the full scientific method. And and look, I understand it's it's a difficult ethical question. Like, do we do cancer research on chimpanzees or something like that like that can help millions of humans a difficult ethical question i can understand there but like what did you discover in the end <laughs> great <laughs> i killed all these dogs and chickens turns out yeah for a couple days you can live we're good wrap it up boys we're good we know we can live for a couple days swallowing multi-led <laughs> as there was still more than half a century of the lease unexpired Don't forget, I've still got this 99-year lease. Mm -hmm. What am I going to do with it? The proprietors felt that no time should be lost in setting about the rebuilding of the lighthouse. Application was made to Lord Macclesfield, the president of the Royal Society, aforementioned, to recommend to them the person whom he considered most fit to be engaged. His lordship most strongly recommended Mr. Smeaton, who had recently left the business of mathematical instrument maker and taken up that of a civil engineer, for which his genius admirably fitted him. Not only had he taken up the role of civil engineer, John Smeaton was literally the first civil engineer. Oh, wow. Yeah, he coined the term. That seems like a bigger deal than building a lighthouse. He came up with the term to differentiate engineering infrastructure for the public from the work that military engineers do. So that's why he came up with civil engineer. 
I like it. And I like that after two failed lighthouse attempts, they're like, let's get a guy who actually knows how to build something. This time. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Like, do you know anyone? And then the guy's like, yeah, this guy was building windmills as a fucking baby. <laughs> that's how good he is. Not an architect, though. Not an architect, but a builder of things. He determined that the new lighthouse should be of stone. Get out of here. Shut the front door. Woo! We're doing it, baby. <laughs> Finally. During this time, the belief and expressed opinion of most persons were that a stone lighthouse would certainly not stand the winds and seas to which it would be exposed <laughs> on the Eddy Stone. What? I know. It's like all the naysayers on the shore being like, it should be wood. We still got these oak trees. Yeah. We still got lots left. We got at least 2,000 oak trees lying yeah. down, not being used. What's he doing? Yeah. However, on the 12th of June, 1757, the first stone was laid. The whole undertaking was accomplished within a space of little more than three years. A few particulars concerning the mode of constructing this remarkable building may be interesting. I read ahead. They're not. So. <laughs> I appreciate you taking one for the team there. Yeah. And for us being able to skip these boring <laughs> 1700s construction details. I'm going to condense about like four pages of complete boredom down to the significant progress that he made with the building of this lighthouse. He developed the dovetail cutting method for the stonework. Oh, wow. I, I wasn't familiar with this. It's used in a lot of woodworking. Joints are dovetailed to keep them in place. Yeah. So rings, basically, of stone dovetailing into each interior ring, right? To keep it all in place. That's pretty good. Yeah. He also pioneered for this lighthouse hydraulic lime a concrete that sets underwater for the foundation. Holy shnikes! Yeah. That, I, I mean, I don't know why you said this is boring. That's incredible. Well, I mean, it's boring because of, like, and you should read how they wrote it. But uh... <laughs> <laughs> No, nah, I'd rather not, honestly. <laughs> But that is, that is pretty amazing. Like, he went around, he sourced all, yeah. the, all the stone, all the rocks for this. So he brought to the table, instead of an elaborate series of pulleys and levers, he brought, yeah. he brought to the table some serious ideas on how to build a long-standing lighthouse. Yeah, that, that's pretty great. Yeah. What else is John Smeaton known for? He had a long and, and, and illustrious career as a civil engineer, taking commissions to design or improve harbors, bridges, and canals all across the country. All of this, which is great, pales in comparison to him building a fucking windmill <laughs> when he was a year and a half old. <laughs> you were right. You said at the beginning, it's all downhill from there. You, he, he peaked as a baby. He peaked. He peaked. He probably never got over that. Yeah, totally. Just like, oh, that's a cute lighthouse. But remember that windmill you built when you were a baby? Totally. Like, he built this lighthouse. It's lasting for 10 years. He comes back to visit the town's like, how old were you when you built this? I was 42. Oh. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> They're just sad about it. Oh, I guess, whatever, that's fine. A lot of 42-year-olds can build a lighthouse, yeah. 
The Eddystone Lighthouse has not only the merit of utility, but also of beauty, strength, and originality, and is itself sufficient to immortalize the name of the architect. As an illustration of his careful foresight, it is stated that when he was building it a century ago, he discovered a hollow in the rock under his proposed tower. He sought an appropriation to cover the cost of filling this hollow with cement. The expense would have been trifling, two or three hundred pounds, but the board were in a parsimonious fit. The appropriation was not made, and the hollow was left. It is this hollow that has at last forced the building of a new tower on a new ledge. A refusal to expend two or three hundred pounds a century ago has necessitated the expenditure of sixty or seventy thousand pounds now. Whoa! How you parsimonious council, if that's the word <laughs> that they used. So I think this is why this chapter is in this book, because around the publication of this book, they have been building a fourth lighthouse on the Eddystone Rocks. The general consensus in history books is that it was erosion from the water was making the rocks unstable underneath the lighthouse. So they dismantled Smeaton's lighthouse. Oh, wow. And they brought it to Plymouth to rebuild as a memorial to Smeaton and to open to the public as a tourist attraction. So you can still find it in Plymouth to this day. That's pretty cool. And it feels like if it's a museum, that's a better place for the stomach lid. Yeah, you're right. You know, take it out of the National Museum of Scotland, put it in Smeaton's Lighthouse. You should climb Smeaton's Lighthouse, get all the way to the top, and in the middle there's a podium uh, uh, on which sits that oval stomach-shaped <laughs> piece of lead, and next to that podium, a tub. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. But you can still see the stub of Smeaton's Lighthouse, like the bottom, the stump of the lighthouse is still sitting on one rock, and in another rock of the Eddystone, there's a new lighthouse that still stands. It was completed in 1882, designed by civil engineer and prolific lighthouse builder, James Douglas. They finally got a lighthouse builder to come in and build number four. He was knighted for building the fourth Eddystone lighthouse. It's 161 feet high. It was automated 100 years later in 1982, and it's been running on solar power since 1999. There's too much reason to fear that Smeaton taxed his brain too much in philosophical investigations. Some phenomena relating to the moon formed one evening the subject of conversation when it was shining very bright full into his room. Fixing his eyes upon it, he said, How often have I looked up to it with inquiry and wonder, and thought of the period when I shall have the vast and privileged views of a hereafter, and all will be comprehension and pleasure. In a letter to a friend, he said, I conclude myself nine-tenths dead, and the greatest favor the Almighty could do me will be to complete the other part. In the sixty-eighth year of his age, his spirit found rest and his mortal remains repose in the old parish church of Whitkirk. You know, he probably felt nine-tenths dead after completing that windmill as a baby. <laughs> the, this, his whole life he had just been searching for that one-tenth of, of sweet, sweet release. <laughs> and been trying to find it in other projects and nothing could compare. Yeah. <laughs> what a tragedy. 
What a tragedy. Uh, This guy's, uh, I got to be honest, like halfway through, I was like, this is the most boring of all the stories. And it ended up uh, up pretty interesting. I got to be honest. Yeah, there was some thrills. And I know it was a footnote for you, but I am flabbergasted that he invented underwater cement. Oh. Because still the idea of that just boggles my mind. Yes. How do you conceive it? How do you build it? How do you... How does it set? Yeah. I didn't research any of that, uh, but, uh, <laughs> but I invite the listener to. Yeah, please. Please send me an email with a <laughs> lengthy description of underwater cement because I refuse to Google it myself. <laughs> That's our episode for this week. My thanks again to Alistair Forbes for joining me. You can find Alistair on Twitter and Instagram at HaHaForbes, and you can find his dog on Instagram at Corginfluencer. He didn't ask me to, to plug his dog this time, but I'm doing it anyways. It's a cute dog. Check it out. If you like the show, give it a rating or review on Spotify, Apple, or wherever you get your podcasts. Find the show on Twitter at Famous Deeds or on Instagram at Famous.Deeds. And you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Batespot9000. Hey, guess what? We have merch now. You can own and wear your very own dubious book of Famous Deeds t-shirt. It features a beautiful reproduction of one of the images from this book, a portrait of Russian Emperor Alexander II, whom we covered in Chapter 11. Baffle your friends with this amazing t-shirt. Check it out at thesonarnetwork.com. And while you're there, check out all their cool and amazing podcasts. If you want to support the work I do researching and recording this podcast, you can check out buymeacoffee.com slash famous.deeds. You don't need to sign up or anything. It's just a quick and hassle-free way to support creators all over the internet. You know, some of the chapters in this book are about famous people. Some are about famous deeds. But next episode is about neither. No one has ever heard of this guy, but he's in the book, so he must have done something, and I've got one week to find out what. Henry Holland is our subject next week. Until then, I'm Paul Bates. Thanks for listening. This podcast has been brought to you by the Sonar Network. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.